Hey, it's Tara McNamara and Riley Roberts, <laughs> and we are a mother-teen-daughter movie critic combo, and this is 80s Movies. A guide to what's wrong with your parents. Yeah. And today we're going to cover Bright Lights, Big City. Bright Lights, Big City is the movie based on the book that really defined hip, early 80s culture, 20-somethings working hard and playing hard. Or just basically how everyone was just doing coke. Yeah, that's kind of what it seems it's really about. Especially, I think, the movie version. Um, Michael J. Fox stars as Jamie Conway in the film. I think it's a little different than the yeah, book. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely not his type of character. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jamie Conway is a guy whose life is in a downward spiral. He's uh, in the process of losing or has lost his model wife, his uh, mother, his job. Uh, and in the meantime, he's just um, basically going out all night, partying, snorting anything he can find, drinking anything he can find. And I mean, it, like, no one really knows what's going on because, you know, his he's really nice and he doesn't seem like he's going in a downward spiral, but he's really just an alcoholic and a drug addict who goes out till 2 a.m. every night, which was happening before his wife left him. And he just continued to go down that path. I think he probably should have learned from that. So what I'm curious about is the critical opinion at the time that the film came out, which was 1988, and this is a book that was probably written around 1982, 83. It was published in 84. And the the critical opinion at the time was not great. It was not really, like, people didn't really love it, but they kind of loved, the, the novel was just, huge it was a huge we you know the brat pack was huge and um jay mcinnerney which i assume is how you say his name uh was like the brat pack of it was like the literary brat pack he was like the cool kid in literary circles and i i think he thought he was cool because he used third person throughout the whole book so <laughs> probably was like oh yeah i'm cool <laughs> um so i yeah so i'm curious what your thought about the film was you as a 16 year old well, I wasn't really into it. Like, I mean, the book was really good, and uh, I read it during class. But the movie, like, I was expecting more from Michael J. Fox, to be honest. But, um, yeah, it just it, I don't think it captured as much as the book did. Like, it definitely didn't go into major detail, and it wasn't, like, the book captured it in a totally different way than the movie did. Yeah, that was actually one of the difficult things about writing the script, the the this film had such a hard time being made. So basically the novel comes out in 1984 and all of America is drooling over it, especially New York. They just think this is the greatest thing and that this um, novelist is, is the greatest writer. And uh, so Columbia snaps up the rights right away. I mean, not that, that there was a 32 year old executive. He was telling his bosses like, this is the thing you've got to buy this book. Uh, let's make it into a film. And the older bosses are like, I don't know. There's like a lot of drugs and a lot of other stuff. And I don't think we should do that. He was like, no, you should do it. So they do it. They get all of these heavy hitters. They get Jerry Weintraub, who would, you know, put out the Karate Kid as to produce it. They had um, Tom Cruise to star in it. This is a post-risky business Tom Cruise. Um, they had Joel Schumacher, who was in the middle of um, uh, making St. Elmo's Fire to direct it. And so they kind of get this dream team and then Jay McInerney is going to write the screenplay. 
But the issue was they didn't include any drugs, <laughs> which is the whole point of the story. Well, they didn't include that. Can't that did happen somewhere along the way? So it goes through all these these versions. But the reason is is because they couldn't get the script. They couldn't nail that unique voice that you talked about that's in the novel, which is why people love it. And what I think is sort of interesting about that is that that how Jay McInerney wrote the novel was kind of similar to a, a, a moment in the movie. I mean, the movie is, and the book is basically autobiographical to some degree. It's like a fictionalized version of what really happened and of things that were happening in his life. Um, but there was a uh, magazine who liked one of his short stories and said, what else do you got? And he had written a sentence down, you know, something about like it's 6 a.m., you know, where, where am I or something like that. And so he wrote that down. And so he looked at that and thought, I can write. I <laughs> I can write that and just wrote it like I wrote it in something like 48 hours or 24 hours just and very quickly wrote this short version of uh, Bright Lights Big City. And so that's actually how it came to be. So that in unique voice is probably, you know, Jamie McCurney kind of coked up <laughs> just like writing a story. I mean, it, it makes sense. <laughs> it does make it does make sense. It does. Um what did you think about, uh, there's one part in the, the film where they, there's a tabloid story that is, is very 80s, right? Like, and we have all these tabloids and everyone's reading the paper on the subway. Now everybody just looks at their phone. Um, and these scandalous, ridiculous stories. And they had Coma Baby, which was, uh, you know, this baby who was in his mother's womb. And the mother had been, um, like, had, had basically was in a, I think she was in a coma and the baby was in the womb and they didn't know if the baby was going to live. So, our character Jamie is following Coma Baby, and there's a kind of a metaphorical connection there to to him. Yeah, in I mean, in the book and in the movie, I didn't really get it. Like, I didn't understand why he kept going back to the Coma Baby. But then I realized it was because he missed his mom, and he wishes he was a mama's boy, and he wishes he could go back into his mother's womb and probably never come out. And he like because he's sad and he doesn't want to live. So I thought. I thought that had, like, a really deep meaning to it, but I thought it was way too deep for anyone to understand. <laughs> what did you think about the special effect coma baby that we see in the film? That was just weird. <laughs> that, like, didn't make... I mean, I mean, I guess it made more sense, but it just... It was because he, there's a dream sequence where you see the coma baby. So he's reading about it, but he has a... He dreams that the coma baby is speaking to him. Uh, and with... And the special effects are pretty bad, but the the fascinating thing but, is, I mean, it's it's a, yeah, this is 1988. I mean, if we think about like I remember Ally McBeal, which was in I think 1996 uh, or 1998, so like almost a decade later, and the Dancing Baby, which was so just such bad graphics now, and everybody was like, whoa, look at that, it's amazing. They were probably coked out. No, not, <laughs> not in the 90s. That's part of the interesting thing about Bright Lights, Big City is, so So basically, because this changed hands so much, as I said, originally it's at Columbia, then Jerry Weintraub, the producer, goes to United Artists to run the studio, and he is, uh, and so he takes the project with him, and they're working on it there, and then he leaves United Artists. So then there's this legal tussle going back and forth about who has the rights. Finally, it's decided United Artists. So Jerry Weintraub is out. We get a new producer. We get a new director. We get a new writer. And then that director doesn't work out. So they get yet another director who then, at the point of which they start filming this, 
when they were this when they were um on the second to last producer i mean the second to last director who is um joyce chopra who had only done documentaries and a indie film that had a budget of two million um that's all she had done and so they had hired her there was only 10 weeks to film bright lights big city and that's because Michael J. Fox only had that long of a summer hiatus from Family Ties. And so he had to go back. So they were supposed to have 10 weeks. And after a month, all she had were, by most accounts, were exterior shots of him, like, walking and just, like, kind of walking. And her reason is is that she was trying to capture New York in the fall. And so she just wanted to make sure that she had all the exterior shots because they were going to lose the scenes and that it everything wouldn't match up. So... That's why she did it, but for whatever reason, they didn't buy into that. They were like, why are you just getting exteriors? We're on a timeline here, and so they fired her, and then they brought in someone new. So by the time he gets started, now we have the threat of a director's strike, uh, and so they have six weeks to film this thing, and they do. They write an entirely new script. They shoot everything fresh, and they do this in six weeks, and that is why the movie sucks. <laughs> no doubt about that. <laughs> So what was your thought when you were watching that about, like, what 80s life must have been like? Okay, well, I mean, this is also a different kind. Like, I feel like in the 80s from all the other movies I've watched, like, there's everyone's sad. <laughs> Everyone is really sad. And, like, but this was, like, a different kind of sad. Like, most of the 80s movies that I've seen where kids are just sad, they're kids. This, this guy's, like, pretty much an adult and... Now he's losing it, and so I think I mean, from it's kind of, like it's kind of different from other '80s movies because he's living in New York, not because he's living in New York, but because he's older and that he has a job and that he has a life and that he uh, his wife left him. Like I feel like that's not in a lot of um, '80s movies because everyone was sad for different reasons. Like I don't know, like girls <laughs> in well, high school and boys in like college. Like those are the types of movies that were out of kids being sad well i think you're focused on teen movies and that's why you're saying that but if you look at saint almost fire for example that that's also and a lot of them are are kind of sad you know in that film as well so i i don't know it's interesting because we think about depression yeah, but I'm so prevalent like, now in real life but i'm saying those are for different reasons like they're trying to figure out their uh, adult and he's already an adult and already went through marriage and like he like is in New York and he has this job that he can get big in and then he just loses it because of his stupidity and him not caring. Mm-hmm. Is it um, because he doesn't care about his job? No, I think he's just sad <laughs> and he's like, all right, well, I screwed up. So guess this is over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think he's, he doesn't know why their marriage is over, really. So I think that's actually, that's part of the mystery of the film is he doesn't know, he doesn't know why. Um, so I, one, one of the things I thought was so 80s in this film was that, um, that Jason Robard's character, the, the, you know, older writer, uh, who takes him out to lunch and gets him drunk, is tells him, well, you should write about money. Money is poetry now. And I thought that was so 80s because 80s were just it was so much about materialism and money and having things and then what I also find fascinating and I started to talk about this before is the difference between 1982-83 when when the novel was written in 1988 when this movie comes out there's a huge 
huge culture change. So in the early 80s, there was a lot of, you know, partying and coke and sex and all of that because, you know, because everything hadn't hit yet. And by the late 80s, we had the scare of AIDS, no, and people were not having random sex anymore. And they were starting to see the fallout of cocaine. You know, in the early 80s, they didn't really know what the consequence was of doing lots of coke. And that is what I find fascinating about this movie is that they just, you know, the fact that he does he has an alcohol problem and a drug problem isn't really, I don't feel like the character understands that. I don't think by the end of the movie, he gets that there is a correlation between his partying and like actually doing, consuming drugs and alcohol. And the fact that all elements of his life are, are gone. I mean, obviously there's nothing he could do about his mom and maybe not his marriage because his wife was a social climber or a career climber. And she kind of used him to get where she needed to go. But his job and the, black, the fact that his novel is going nowhere is because he won't stop partying. Well, at the end of the movie, he does say, like, wow, I need, I need help. <laughs> like, he was in a bathroom and he was, like, bleeding from his nose just from laughing. And he's like, yeah, this is pretty bad. <laughs> like, this sucks. And he also realized that he liked Vicky, who is that girl he went on one date with. Yeah, um, who he decided when he went in the bathroom was like, should I snort some coke? Maybe I'll skip it right now. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll call Vicky at like three a.m. instead. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and again, that is all reminiscent of Jay McInerney's life because he was he he did work. I think he was a fact checker at a magazine or something similar to that. He was married to a model, very short lived marriage. And then he uh, then he got married to a, uh, I think, an Ivy League student. And so all of that kind of played out. But I get ultimately he doesn't stay with that Ivy League student because then he went on as he got really famous from the novel and just dated like model after model after model and eventually married uh, an heiress. Cool. <laughs> Solid for him. I think it really makes sense with the kind of uh, – character that you see in bright lights big city that probably is how that guy was going to wind up i feel like they i feel like in the book they had like that was like oh yeah i see that but in the movie because it's michael j fox i think that it his character is way more um like nice and like subtle and is like you know what i yeah i'll go for anything i'm like you know like he's he's like a nice guy he's not like he thinks low of himself he doesn't think he's like attractive like that's how they show it like in the movie and so if if i didn't read the book and i just watched the movie and you told me that i'd be like oh really like it seemed like he didn't think that highly of himself um yeah, I think that's a good observation. Um, what did you think about the character Tad Allagash, his uh, his friend who kind of keeps pulling him out, his friend who's sort of like the devil almost, just constantly being like, come out and party with me, come out and party with me? Um, I think he was, uh, you know, he was, he was obviously manipulative, and at the end of the movie, um, the narrator says that, like, oh, wow, like, you and my ex-wife would be great together because they're exactly the same by um, just kind of manipulating him into getting what they want, which is he wants a party friend. She wanted a businessman who lived in New York so that she could get her modeling career started. And they're each, they're just both kind of using him in a way. So, yeah, what I thought, 
I, what I think is really memorable about that is at the beginning of the film, when he, you know, refers to Tad, he's like, you know, he's either the best version of yourself or, you know, brings out the best version of yourself or the worst version of yourself. It's hard to tell which. And by the end of the movie, he realizes that both his wife, played by Phoebe Cates, and, um, and his friend Tad, played by Kiefer Sutherland, are both these people who seem so fabulous, but they're really awful. And um, and I and there's another character um, actually that it reminds me of the movie High Fidelity, um, Catherine Zeta Jones's character in that movie, because uh, in that movie John Cusack goes and sees all his ex girlfriends trying to figure out you know where he as a boyfriend has gone wrong in life you know and with his choices and he you know he remembers her and she was so fabulous and he goes and she's having this fabulous dinner party and she's just you know so chatty and everyone loves her but as he leaves he realizes that even though she seems so fabulous she's really awful. And it's like a been something that I personally think of both of these instances, like when you're at the parties and you see the people and then you kind of can see through them and be like, oh, they're not that great. They're kind of terrible. Actually, I think I don't want to spend any time with them, you yeah. know. Um, all right. Well, this is Bright Lights, Big City. And I think that the last thing then to, to talk about here. So the point of. 80s movies, A Guide to What's Wrong with Your Parents, is that, you know, my generation grew up with these films, and now your generation is watching these films and enjoying them. And the point is, is that, you know, they're so messed up, because really, the people at the time of the 80s, they were messed up. <laughs> they were all, they were all doing a ton of coke, and they didn't really have um, values. I would say probably not. And so they just make movies so differently then than they do now. And so when we look back as adults, we're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe these are the movies I was watching as a teenager because films are so influential and, uh, and, and so immersive. So the thing that I'd say is the real head slap to Bright Lights, Big City, the real, like, I can't believe that facepalm, can't believe this got made, is that really the film glamorizes drug use. And even though we as an audience can see that he's slipping downhill and that it's because of his partying, the character, it's, as, as one movie critic said, it's, in a, it's done non-judgmentally. And the issue with doing it non-judgmentally is that you walk away kind of going, yeah, that looks fun. I think I should do that. It's apparently what people do. Let's do it. <laughs> I think what people could take away from the movies, though, is that everyone is sad because of it. To be like, oh, yeah, that looks fun until you're, crying in your room and locked in and just sitting there crying because you're sad for no reason. Okay, see, I'm glad that you are putting those things together because we, we 80s kids did not. All right, well, thanks for listening to Bright Lights, Big City, 80s Movies, A Guide to What's Wrong with Your Parents. We will have another episode soon. Click around on the website. Thanks.